We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. As the midterm elections draw near, you're hearing more and more of these accusations of you're a Christian nationalist. And it's even coming from the pulpit, from the evangelical communities. So I guess the question is, what are they talking about? What's the definition of a Christian nationalist? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thanks a bunch for listening into the show. Well, as the midterm elections are drawing near, we've got a little over two weeks left before we all go to the polls and vote again for who should lead our nation, who should lead our states, who should lead our local communities. Maybe a better way for me to say it is who should serve our nation, our states, and our local communities. Who should be charged by us, the people, to represent us in local government and state government and federal government. We will make those decisions in the days ahead. This is one of the things that we enjoy here in the United States of America, a constitutional republic. We enjoy the right and the responsibility to go vote for the people that will give us the greatest measure of freedom that we can enjoy within our local communities, our towns, our townships, our counties, our states, and our nation. Who do we want to represent us? Well, when you're talking about all of this right now, and when you watch the commercials and listen to the debates, when you read an article in the newspaper or on Facebook or any other social media, when you're listening to commentary on podcasts or radio shows, this claim, this accusation of Christian nationalism seems to be rising in frequency again in the news. And it doesn't come from just the progressive secularists. It's coming from the pulpit. It comes from those who fancy themselves evangelical leaders and, and thinkers, pastors and preachers and professors, who are telling us that Christian nationalism is bad. And these are the reasons that the Bible rejects Christian nationalism. There's a separation of church and state, and you Christians, we Christians, need to recognize that we need to keep the politics out of the church. It's dividing us. It's giving us a black eye in the public square. Stop worshiping Donald Trump. Stop worshiping America. It's idolatry. You, you talk about American exceptionalism when we've done all of these bad things in our past? I mean... The Crusades, they weren't good. You know that. Uh, that, was, that was the direct result of mixing politics with religion, of the church marrying into political power. And it never works out well. Look what happened in the Crusades. I mean, they go on and on. These are examples that they use. You've heard them all before. And they say, you, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, need to reject this nationalistic fervor, this Christian nationalism. But here's a question I have for you before we take a break. 
do they ever really even define it? When you hear people criticize Christian nationalism, do they bother to tell you what the definition of Christian nationalism is? Oh, they'll start rattling off all of these bad things that they think have happened. They'll start criticizing America for its mistakes. They'll start ridiculing the church, undermining the church. They'll start challenging anybody who gets involved politically under the banner of their Christianity. And they'll say that those things are all bad and that's the result of Christian nationalism. But the result isn't the definition. They're always looking at the symptoms. They never define the disease. They never tell us what it is. What is Christian nationalism? Well, I'm going to try to answer that today as best I can by going back to what it is that they seem to be saying. Now, I'm not going to agree with them that that's the accurate definition, but I'm going to try to decipher what it is that they seem to think Christian nationalism is. And then I'll share with you some facts that I've used to respond to these accusations. We'll let you decide whether you agree with me or not. Let's take a break. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, so welcome back to The Rebellion. For the rest of the show, I want to talk about this accusation of Christian nationalism. We've talked about it before on this show, but the like, like I said in the introduction, uh, the, the accusation, the claims, the warnings, the diatribes against Christian nationalism are on the rise again. And it seems that the point of those that are throwing around this uh, Christian nationalism label so liberally, it seems that their point is that any Christian who's engaging in the public square saying that we need to return to Christian virtues and values, that we are a Christian nation, irrefutably so. Not that everybody in the nation is a Christian, no. Not that we require everybody in the nation to be a Christian, no. And not that we expect that to be the case. We do not. When you hear conservatives such as myself or others that may not label themselves conservative, just good, solid historians who say we are a Christian nation, when you hear that coming out of the Supreme Court in days gone by, when you hear that from the lips of various different presidents, Democrat presidents included, when you hear these claims of being a Christian nation, a Bible-believing nation, a nation grounded in the teachings of Christ, in the teachings of the Bible, in the historical veracity of the Christian religion. When you hear this type of talk in our founding fathers' words, from our founding fathers, in their documents, I should say, and when you hear them being quoted in subsequent leaders, people of note throughout the course of American history, when you hear this talk of being a Christian nation, no one was claiming that they thought everyone in the nation was a Christian or that everyone had to be or would be a Christian within the nation. No, they are arguing that the Christian principles of freedom, of truth, of responsibility, of respect, of the Ten Commandments being the context for our law, that's what they're arguing. They're arguing that, and that we're not a Buddhist nation, we're not a Muslim nation. We've got a different standard for law, for morality, and for living together in community than a Muslim nation would have. And that has affected the Western world accordingly. That's what people are talking about, such as myself, when we talk about a Christian nation. Does that make us Christian nationalists? 
Well, there's a guy that wrote an article just this last week. His name is Howard Snyder. Now, Howard Snyder is a very bright man. In fact, I cite him in my dissertation. I used a lot of his research and writing about evangelicalism within the evangelical Christian college movement, Christian college movement across the nation of the uh, mid-1800s and onward. I cite him frequently because he is a good historian, and he is a Christian. I'm not challenging his Christianity at all here. I disagree with his implied negatives with regard to Christian nationalism. He wrote an article and posted it recently. Um, It's titled, Five Reasons Biblical Christians Reject Christian Nationalism. And then he goes on in the article and he says this, Christian nationalism is not Christian. Biblical Christians should reject it outright, primarily for five reasons, he said, or says. And the first of those is it contradicts Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He goes on and says, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And love for enemies, peacemaking, peaceful language, reconciliation, special concern for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, following Jesus in action, not words, not just words, he says. Now, I want you to listen to what he just said. He believes that Christian nationalism contradicts the Sermon on the Mount. But then he goes on and he says that Christians should be following Jesus in action and not just words, and that we should have love and concern for the poor, for the widow, uh, for reconciliation, for peacemaking. Okay? Now, you got to define things here. Uh, and I can't take too long on this, but what is the definition of love? What is the definition of the kingdom of God? And what is the definition of taking action? Following Jesus in action and not just words. Is my action to protect the unborn? Is my action to protect, protect the dignity and identity of women? Is my action in the public square to protect the innocence of children from a, a social movement that's taking place right now that degrades women, mocks them and maligns them, murders children, seconds before they're born, and now is even in the midst of legislating and codifying into law that it will become legal in the state of California to kill those children after they're born if they are the result of a botched abortion. You can still let that kid die post-birth. So when I engage in the public square and follow Jesus in action and not just words— And I have a special concern for the children who are being butchered in mind, body, and soul. And for women who are being black-faced and mocked and maligned. And when I have a special concern for the poor, and I believe that it's wrong to destroy our economy and to tax everyone, the poor included, disproportionately because of inflation. When I have a special concern that when you destroy our own energy industry— And when you start teaching people to judge people by the color of their skin rather than the content of their character, when I have a special concern for the poor because we're defunding the police in their neighborhoods and they're the ones who suffer first and foremost for it, when I have a special concern for those who won't have the right to defend themselves if the left continues to ignore the Second Amendment, when I have a special concern for these people in the public square and I want to follow the gospel in action and not just words— and do something about the way these people are being mistreated because they're compromising the kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of God, the example that Jesus set up so that all men would be treated equally, and that the truth would set us free, and that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. When I have a special concern for that message, but yet the methods that I believe are most productive for solving those problems are different than Howard Snyder's. Am I a Christian nationalist? Does that make me the very thing that he's condemning? Interesting, isn't it? His second reason for rejecting Christian nationalism is he claims it violates Romans 13. And and that we are not to contradict the state. That the role of the church and the role of the state must be separate. And that we should not engage in the mingling of those two. That there's a distinction between the church and the state. And that this liberal interpretation of John, or excuse me, Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists in Connecticut, that somehow the church can't go into the state, can't go into culture, can't go in and try to be the salt and light that it's supposed to be. That when we say it's our obligation to do that, to stop the evil that lurks in every human heart, that somehow I'm wrong? I'm a Christian nationalist. I'm violating Romans 13 when I do the very thing that Howard Snyder is calling upon me to do, and that is engage in the community because I have a special concern for those that are being disadvantaged by sin, the sin of the state, the sin of the community. Am I a Christian nationalist? Here's another thing that he says with regard to the reason that you should reject Christian nationalism. He says it repeats the biggest mistake of the church throughout history, and that's the wedding of the church and the state. This was the heir of Emperor Constantine, he says. And he goes on and says that this led to the violent crusades against the Muslims. Uh, The mistake also of England and Portugal and Spain leading to the conquest and the extermination of indigenous peoples in the Americas and elsewhere in the name of God. I completely shake my head at Howard Snyder's pejorative interpretation of history here. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm grateful for Constantine. I'm not a Catholic. I'm an evangelical believer. I'm a Protestant, but I'm grateful for Constantine. And I've talked about this before. I'm not claiming that Constantine was perfect in any stretch of the imagination. And I'm not even necessarily buying the claim that Constantine was legitimately converted to Christianity. I don't know. We'll find out in eternity. I'm not trying to judge or not judge here. I just don't know. Was his conversion for political expediency or was it a legitimate conversion to Christ. I don't know. But what I do know is this. In God's sovereignty, God used a broken pagan man to release the church to do its good work. Because prior to Constantine, Christians were being burned at the stake. They were being impaled on pikes, dipped in oil, and lit as torches to light the city streets in Rome. They were being thrown to the lions. Christians were being used as entertainment in the gladiatorial competitions. They were being butchered, beheaded, drawn asunder. That means cut in two. They were being drawn and quartered. This was what was happening to the church. Now, that was in God's sovereignty and providence, too. He used the blood of the martyrs to plant the seeds of the church. But then in God's plan 
a pagan man comes along, and he was very pagan. He was a Roman emperor. He did things that were very, very bad. Uh, This is irrefutable. But God used that man to release the church, to let the church go, to free up the church to be the salt and light that it needed to be, to seed Western civilization. Europe, across the Atlantic, the United States, Canada, the Americas, and then eastward also. He released the church to do its good work. Now, I'm not claiming that all of that was perfect. No, not at all. And I've said this before. It's interesting that those that want to criticize Constantine and Christendom always use Christendom, Christianity, as a standard for their criticism. Even the secularists do this. Even the atheists do this. They're criticizing Christianity for not being Christian enough, for falling short. So they're using the soap of the church to try to criticize the church, but they don't recognize that you wouldn't be able to even say the church was wrong without using the church's own soap, its own cleansing agent. The repentance and the revival and the restoration and the reformation that the church brings to the discussion is the very thing that they use to try to criticize the church for making that those values important in the first place. Because without the church, none of the stuff that they're criticizing would be criticizable. Does that make sense? That's the reality of what goes on when people start criticizing the church. So, you know, I'm thankful for Constantine. Frankly, I'm thankful for the Crusades. Uh, he, Howard Snyder is blaming Christians for the Crusades. You might want to think about the fact that Muslims were invading Europe at the time, and they needed to be stopped. And it had Constantine not empowered the church to exercise its authority and its influence on culture some centuries earlier, we would all be Muslim right now. The Muslim world would have swept across Europe, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Germany, the Netherlands. And then when it was time to continue to spread westward across the Atlantic, who do you think would have been seeding their culture into America? Would it have been the pilgrims and pietism and Christianity? The peace, love, redemption, reconciliation, repentance, revival of the gospel, or would it have been a different worldview? Would we have religious freedom right now in the United States? Would we have a constitutional republic right now in the United States? And how about the other Americas, even in Latin America, South America? Would Canada be the same as it is right now without the Crusades? Oh, some bad stuff happened. I agree with that. Bad stuff always happens when people who are bad are involved in the implementation of these ideas, these wars, these crusades. But I'm thankful for Constantine. I'm thankful for Christendom. And I'm not going to blame Constantine for everything that ails us today. I'm going to thank him for standing in the way and stopping the Turks Stopping, stopping the spread of Islam across Europe, and then inevitably it would have spread across the Atlantic into the Americas. And this claim that somehow this is this mingling of the church and the state, this wedding of church and state, 
resulted in the extermination of indigenous peoples in the Americas and elsewhere in the name of God. Again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there are not facts, incidences where people did very bad things. And I think Native Americans have every right in the world to expect those things, those atrocities, to be taught and highlighted. The Trail of Tears was not a good thing. It's not a good thing. To, to steal a people's land and to force them to march across multiple states, hundreds of them dying in the process, and then dropping them on a cold, barren, dark world in the West with no sustenance. That was not a good thing. But, but to blame the church for that and to ignore the fact that Christendom and its expansion west actually did some good stuff too. For example, Mayans and Aztecs, some of those native tribes, native populations, were practicing human sacrifice. The church said, that's not a good thing. You should stop that. The, the other tribes that existed in North America, some of which were very violent tribes, not all, but some of which were very violent and, and warring tribes, and other native tribes were fearful of them because of their ferocity, their, their aggression. You know, everything wasn't just peaceful and perfect prior to Europeans coming to North America, South America, Central America. No, everything wasn't perfect. And everything isn't perfect now. But is there a positive movement toward peace and freedom and human dignity that was set up by the church, by Christendom? initiated by Constantine, in a way. So I'm thankful for the Crusades. Here's my point. Howard Snyder is condemning Christian nationalism, but the interesting thing is he never defines it. He never defines what Christian nationalism really is. He just kind of implies that if you're a conservative and you believe in the conservative influence, the biblical influence, the Christian influence on our culture, that that makes you a Christian nationalist, that you're somehow a right-wing religious wingnut, a Christian nationalist, if you have conservative views on things from uh, such as the right to life or the right to bear arms or the right to self-government, you're a Christian nationalist if you believe in those things. You're, you're to blame for everything that ails us. How could anyone vote for anyone who believes in those rights, in those conservative things? Because you're mingling, you're, you're breaching the wall of separation of church and state. You're wedding the two together. You know, I've said before on this show, if believing that we have no king in America, but rather all authority rests in we the people— makes me a Christian nationalist, then I guess I'm guilty as charged. If, if holding that our government is uniquely of the people, by the people, and for the people, that's Abraham Lincoln, by the way, makes me too conservative and a Christian nationalist, then I guess I should stand here condemned. I am one. If arguing that in our country no politician or bureaucrat ever has the legal or moral authority 
to tell us what to inject into our bodies or what to wear on our face, when we could go shopping and whether or not we can even go to church. If that makes me a Christian nationalist, then so be it. If believing that our republic is anchored in the premise that no unjust authority bears any obligation to obedience, in other words, we're not obligated to obey an unjust authority, that's Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, by the way. If believing that makes me a Christian nationalist, then I am one. If, if believing that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights and that to secure these rights, governments, governments exist. They're instituted among men so that we can secure and defend and fight for these rights. And that all just power is derived from consent of the people, consent of the governed. We're the government. We're the king. Romans 13 calls upon us to be the authority. We are obligated to rise up within our constitutional republic and be the government. If believing that, which, by the way, I'm paraphrasing the words of Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and others, if that makes me a Christian nationalist, then that's me. If believing that God defines life and that you don't, and that marriage is a sacrament of the church, and it's not the business of the state, and if believing that being a female is a biological fact and not a fabrication of a dysphoric male, if believing that children should be protected and not indoctrinated with your kiddie porn and your drag queen performances in the Bartlesville Public Park, if believing that it is imminently better to judge people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. That's Martin Luther King Jr., by the way. If this makes me and Martin Luther King Jr. Christian nationalists, religious zealots, right-wing religious wingnuts, then I'm going to wear that label with pride. If believing that the Bible is the best of all books, for it is the Word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and the next, that's John Jay, President of the Continental Congress, if believing that the Holy Scriptures can alone secure to society order and peace and to our courts justice and our constitutions of government purity and stability, that's James McHenry, signer of the Constitution. If that makes me a Christian nationalist, Howard Snyder, then I am one. Howard Snyder refuses to define Christian nationalism. He just rants against it, implying that believing in these Objective historical facts of our nation, believing that we are obligated to do what Howard Snyder tells us to do, to engage in culture, to do what John Wesley did, to be salt and light, to set yourself afire so that the world will beat a path to your doorstep to watch your, you burn. If believing that makes me a Christian nationalist, then I guess I am one. But Howard Snyder and others should define their terms before they start throwing around these reckless accusations that conservatives somehow should be silenced and that we're dangerous because we believe that Christianity is important to our nation and that we're proud of our nation because of its Christian history, heritage, and values. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.